0: This interview is one in a series recorded by the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust as part of a Health Education England funded programme to transform outcomes for children and young people with extra vulnerability to mental health difficulties. The series includes interviews with a range of experts who each have specialist knowledge on the needs and experiences of a particular vulnerable group. This is an interview with David Eyre.
1: Uh, so my name is David Eyre. I'm a Head of Service in the Strategy and Performance Unit at Doncaster Council where I look after policy strategy and innovation programs for children and young people. Uh, I've been in a mixture of roles across Westminster, local government and the third sector for the past eight and a half years now. Uh, And in each of those roles, I've had a focus on children who are disadvantaged, living in poverty or uh, suffering with mental health problems as well. And so uh, hopefully really bringing my expertise to bear today.
0: Could you start off just by explaining a little bit about what we mean when we say a young person's living in poverty, what does that kind of actually look like?
1: Yeah, so this is something that really um, animates me, I think. So there's the discussion around poverty is typically very technical. So it focuses on numbers, percentages, so things like. Below 60% of median income means that you're in relative poverty or the fact that there are 4 million children living in poverty in the UK now. Um, And these are obviously concerning numbers and stats. But what really I'm interested in is the human element of that as well. So what is the story of the young people who are involved and kind of the presenting factors as well? So uh, I think there's a lot of different ways that it can present itself. Obviously, the, the first indicator that people often look to is uh, children and young people who are eligible for free school meals. So um, this is like a, a really useful proxy uh, for children who are living in poverty in schools uh, and is an easy way for, for people to identify them in that setting. But that doesn't really go far enough. Um, that's predominantly focused on uh, or entirely focused on uh, children, and young people whose parents are out of work. we know now that more than two-thirds of children who live in poverty live in families where at least one parent is in work as well so the kind of nature of poverty is changing as people move into work but don't move out of poverty and i think that really has an understanding on how uh, sorry an impact on how we understand uh, children and young people's experiences so there's a few different things where this can start to start to play out um one of them typically is around school uniform so one of the things that I found out when I worked at the children's society and did quite a lot of work on was the fact that there's uh, not enough being done to kind of poverty proof the school day um and by that I mean uh, kind of provide the the necessary support to these young people and that's not just uh, financial support but kind of the emotional support that goes around it yeah. um due to the high cost of a number of school uniforms now what what we're finding is that children and young people are turning up to school in incorrect uniform using the school's own definition of what is correct and incorrect there Uh, and that that could mean that they aren't wearing the blazer with the right badge on or that they have like the wrong pair of trousers on stuff like that and so you get it from a school perspective that it looks like they're kind of disobeying the rules of the school when really it's the case that parents aren't in a position to afford the more expensive kind of branded school uniform and that can lead to them being excluded as well so that they they miss out on their education so there's a negative impact associated with that but there's also an element of it in terms of peer relationships too so you can see it playing out in terms of uh, bullying in certain instances as well where children young people are are kind of stigmatized by their peers for appearing to be different in some way uh, and that's as a result of their inability to afford the cost of school so that's a really that's a really crucial one
0: So even taking such a basic thing as school uniform, we can already see how that might be having quite a massive impact on a young person's ability both to engage with school and also to have sort of decent relationships with their peers.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, And relationships with their peers and the professionals that work in schools as well. Um, One of the things that has always stayed with me was from when uh, I worked on the Children's Commission on Poverty, which was a child-led inquiry run by the Children's Society. And one of the bits of evidence that we heard was from um, someone who worked with schools in the Northeast and a young person who'd come into uh, a home economics class, but uh, was living in poverty and hadn't been able to afford to buy the materials necessary to be in that class. Mm -hmm. So the school provided them with uh, the ingredients necessary to make the cake that day, but then threw the cake in the bin at the end of the day as well, because they hadn't uh, paid for the ingredients themselves. So there's things that like kind of, you know, highlight behaviour by staff in schools but also then kind of really separates children from their peers as well and I think there's like a really crucial interaction between money and those two things.
0: Wow, that's that's a horrible story. I hope you'll have some happier ones to share later on. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> What does um? So what does the kind of research tell us about the young people? So you you kind of shared a bit about the the kind of personal impact and thinking about what that might look like in the school day, but kind of in terms of the the kind of big numbers and where the evidence is going and what we think we need to be doing to support this kind of cohort, are there any kind of headlines there or any emerging evidence that we should be aware of?
1: There's there's plenty of evidence, really. Uh, I think what is what is crucial to think about when thinking about child poverty is that a child never exists outside of a family. Mm-hmm. so we, we talk about the impact of poverty on children but that is within the context of the family in which they live so usually the things that cause poverty are adult issues but they play out and have an impact on children and young people yeah. so for instance we could consider benefit cuts so with the introduction of universal credit for instance as well yeah. uh, what you're seeing is families being perhaps eligible for less um less support via the benefit system than they were previously which can have uh, really negative consequences lead to them having to access food banks uh take kind of really uh, extreme measures to make sure that they're able to put food on the table for for their children yeah. um and that is obviously something that has a real impact on them um all the research shows as well that the impacts of uh, the impact on parents isn't shielded from children as well as much as parents might try yeah. they're much more perceptive and kind of understanding of the issues that they face um and that they, they can even start to kind of self-deselect if that makes sense so would stop asking for certain things be they new toys new clothes things like that because they know that their family can't afford them um also there's things around the way that it can afford um, their family's ability to afford basic essentials so the way that Um, I've seen it broken down, which I think is really helpful, which is if if you think around child poverty uh, using three R's, which are risk, resilience and resources. So if you think about the resources first, that is simply the amount of money that they have to put food on the table, heat the family home, make sure that you've got um, the right fitting school uniform for your children. Yeah. Um, resilience uh, links to issues around well-being uh, and mental health yeah. so what is the impact on the subjective levels of well-being of those children and young people and the like potential links to stress anxiety depression in both parents and children as a consequence of living on a low income for a sustained period of time as well yeah. and then finally um, uh, is around risk so are they at risk of like? of going into poverty? Are they on the edge of poverty now and at risk of falling in as a consequence of some of these external factors like rising costs or like a reduction in benefits or potentially like a shock to family circumstances as well? There's something around the risk that high levels of personal debt can cause as well linked to this. And finally, also the fact that uh, higher numbers of disadvantaged children and young people are more at risk of running away from home at risk of uh, mental health problems at risk of cSE you could you kind of you name it uh, and that the, the combination of those risk resilience and resources really is how it um, how it pans out
0: And although I'm sure it's quite difficult to sort of untangle those, I wonder if you're able to explore with us any ideas that someone who might be listening to this, so a kind of non-specialist might be able to do if they're concerned about a child to kind of help mitigate some of those risks and particularly thinking about the sort of uh, risks to their mental health um, and, and well-being.
1: Yeah, so a disadvantaged pupil be they free school meals uh, or otherwise, it typically brings some sort of funding into schools. So I think there's a clear role for schools here. So you have the pupil premium, um, which is money money that follows uh, disadvantaged pupils, and that can be used flexibly by schools. So they can pay for uh, extra staff time to focus on... uh, academic side of support and they could use that to fund free school trips for children and young people who come from low-income households who wouldn't otherwise be afforded to go and therefore would be excluded Mm -hmm. they could use that uh, to help with the cost of school uniform if it was prohibitively high and but that could also be used to fund the presence of a school counsellor for instance so thinking like kind of that taking that kind of consequential view of it rather than thinking of just the kind of financial impact and how that plays out for the child young person thinking about what the kind of wider impact of that is and as I mentioned that the kind of lower levels of subjective well-being and the, and the um, potential for mental health problems as well if you think about it in those terms then uh, like bringing in support that could um, improve that area is, is another option as well.
0: And have you seen any successful interventions which have involved not just the child but their family as well? Because you said before very clearly that it's always a whole family issue.
1: I think there's uh, different examples really. there's Schools used to be kind of community hubs and I suppose with the increased academisation of schools there's been a slight reduction in that but I think like there's networks that exist within local authorities for instance which could be particularly helpful so you have the examples of the, the shift from children's centers to family hubs and the fact that that now encompasses a much broader um, range of support that can be made available to a family so that could be uh, that could include stuff around advice on benefits making sure that they're getting everything that they're eligible for so that they can maximize their family income that could be uh, support with kind of parenting classes and, and parenting techniques that they otherwise uh, wouldn't actually so they can make sure that they're giving their child the best start in life is uh, that kind of wider almost like softer support if you will that I think it is proving to be uh, particularly helpful and uh, also kind of fitting in around the early help agenda so rather than like waiting for anything to get through to The point where it's um a statutory service which steps in to support a family really thinking about like a more consent based service model um that that means that like you know families are actively engaging because they want to and they know that they kind of trust the support that they're being given and i think that model is particularly effective in, in affecting positive change really
0: and is there anywhere that um, schools can kind of turn to if they're concerned or they want to see a kind of model of best practice? Are there sort of charities or websites or, or other things that you would recommend looking to?
1: There's lots of charities, uh, certainly, who focus on the impact of poverty on children and young people. So the Children's Society are an excellent example. National Children's Bureau, Action for Children, Barnardo's. They all have some really excellent um, resources available on their websites. And also through the services that they run across the country, where they can offer kind of support and advice to professionals, parents and anyone in between, really, for the best support that they can put in place for children living in poverty. Um, There's also um, plenty of support that's available through local authorities as well. So like if families are struggling, um, they can go and get in touch, like I say, through these family hubs. And then finally, the uh, local organisations like citizens advice bureaus are excellent as well at providing that kind of holistic support to families as well pr- with a predominantly financial kind of angle to it, But like understanding the importance of that to the kind of wider, the wider happiness of the family as well.
0: Absolutely. And is there anything that we need to be aware of um, in terms of things not to do? So if we're trying to engage with that young person or their family, is there anywhere where we might kind of commonly slip up?
1: So the thing that often comes out is the kind of accidental uh, stigma that can be applied to them. So whether it's like a special mark in the register or a different... Um, a different kind of card because they're eligible for free school meals and um, th- those are kind of classics where like children who are from low income backgrounds are made to feel slightly different from their peers. Yeah. And I think there's probably ways that um, schools and, and others can can mitigate against that by uh, doing stuff behind the scenes to make sure that the processes are in place. Absolutely. So that like everyone gets what they need, but doesn't doesn't kind of make people feel different as well. And also, there's things around like if, if it's the, if it's an issue to do with, um, say, a family's ability to. Pay for school meals if they aren't eligible for free school meals. Making sure that they communicate directly with the family for that, and not sending stuff through the children to go home because then that that can then make them feel like they're in trouble uh, when really it's not their fault that they come from a low-income household. Um, so the, the, this is kind of the, the softer, kind of more understanding, more empathic um, sort of little bits that that anyone can do really.
0: So that comes back to this idea you mentioned before about kind of poverty proofing the school day um what else mm. would you kind of add into that so if a school was yeah looking to poverty proof I, I find that that's quite a useful term and a good aim for for all of our schools i think um yeah what what would that look like so we, you talked briefly before about school uniform
1: mm-hmm. so uh there's also like i say school trips as well so if a child is unable to afford a school trip that been instances where they're, they're left behind on those days and excluded from those school trips which can have an impact both on their learning but also on their levels of well-being so finding a way to make sure that those trips are as inclusive as possible so considering the cost around that i think is i think is really important um and then also that the materials that could be needed for any particular course as well and uh, making sure that uh, children and young people aren't having to uh, de- Self deselect from any particular options because of the cost of that. I think like education, uh, especially in the state sector, should be uh, free for all. So uh, making sure that they aren't having to make choices based on finances, uh, but rather on their kind of passions and interests uh, is really important.
0: So in terms of um, kind of promoting the well-being of these young people, it seems that most of it comes down to actually trying to kind of uh, mitigate or manage those sort of risk and resource type issues. Um, Is there anything specific in terms of actual interventions to do with mental health or emotional well-being that you've seen work well?
1: Uh, so having done some research on this myself, uh, one excellent example that I saw was from a school in the West Midlands um, and they had done a lot around this. This was like thinking about poverty and also thinking about mental health as well mm-hmm. um, and thinking about the support that they put on. And they had on extra classes for tuition uh, around exam times, which was obviously really helpful So those uh, young people. From disadvantaged backgrounds could be given the additional support that they needed to make sure that they could um, reach the levels of attainment which would give them the best kind of platform for success in the future but alongside that also making available provision around counselling, uh, be that kind of formal or informal, so that if there was any kind of stress, anxiety, depression, anything like that linked to um, exam times, and there was someone on hand to talk to them as well and make sure that they felt like they were able to address that side of the, of the issue. So they were thinking about the educational side, but then also the kind of wellbeing related side of things as well. And I think that that model um, it, I found particularly inspiring. So if it, it shows that you're taking a kind of holistic view of that young person and thinking about what contributes to their success in the shorter and the longer term and um, so i think uh, uh, replicating that would be a, a really positive first step
0: and did that have positive outcomes or is it still ongoing
1: uh so that's still ongoing now um the, what i suppose actually what's worth mentioning is wrapped around that as well was there was a a, a kind of corridor with a number of rooms off it where, which offered the opportunity just for dropping in to kind of Diversionary activities, whether it was like if you were feeling stressed, you could pop in and play a game of table tennis, or you could like speak to one of your friends, or you could just have some kind of quiet time around that. And I think, like, all that sort of, um, that sort of mixture of activity and support um, across a range of areas really is something that was uh, from the anecdotal evidence that they shared with me really starting to bear some fruit both in terms of the, the happiness and the behaviour of pupils like uh, making sure and their engagement within lessons uh, and uh, they were really optimistic that that was going to translate into improved results as well.
0: That sounds like a, a really positive intervention but also it sounds quite doable I mean all the things that you mentioned there feel like things that other schools could pick up and 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 do and try yeah
1: i think that's fair i think what what all of this really what from all of this really stands out to me is that it isn't rocket science mm-hmm. it's thinking about The pupils as individuals as well and thinking about what their needs kind of aspirations are taking like a a pupil level approach to this so if there's something that really motivates them or like excites them being able to focus on that or if they have um a particular kind of level of disadvantage from their family circumstances being understanding of that and realizing that you know that there's going to be an impact on that for them and and it's the role of schools local authorities youth clubs charities everyone to kind of wrap around and support that and that um i think it, i think really there's a the question for me lies around consistency mm-hmm. so what like making sure that a child or young person can expect to receive the same level of support um understanding compassion whatever whatever that whatever it might be regardless of the setting that they're in as well and okay. um, so uh because otherwise like, you end up with like a kind of fluctuating level of support and an inconsistency, which, which which doesn't help that young person. And so if we can find a way to, I suppose, like almost have like a set of principles which uh, people who work with children and young people could could adhere to. So to ensure that consistency then that, that around poverty, then that would just be um, I think that would be a really positive step.
0: And on a local level, that might look like thinking carefully about transition from one school to another or working with kind of local youth groups and, and things like that that kids might be accessing, I assume.
1: Yes, definitely. Um, that's something that we're very conscious of. The, the point around transitions is definitely uh, something that in Doncaster here we, we've been putting a lot of time and energy into understanding. Um, we've recently conducted a, a pupil lifestyle survey and a piece of Research, research specifically at levels of subjective well-being for children and young people and what we're seeing is that there's a, a real kind of drop off and change in the levels of well-being on that transition between primary and secondary school uh, and the and the impact that that has on their levels of aspiration their levels of uh, engagement with the, with education with even feeling safe in their uh, in their school as well and so i think that there's still a lot more that we can do like locally regionally nationally to kind of better understand that
0: Absolutely. Um, I'd really love it if you have a story that you're able to draw on that um, counteracts the cake story. <laughs> is, is there one that's maybe <laughs> stayed in mind that, that maybe shows when things have gone right that might leave us feeling a bit happier?
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, I suppose it's um, there's a really nice example from Doncaster at the moment. So we are running a child-led inquiry into child poverty in Doncaster. Um so this means that we have eight young people who formed uh, a kind of group of young commissioners and they're having uh, the opportunity to shape the debate around child poverty in Doncaster. So they're getting to understand what it means to live in poverty, um, what, what it means, like, what the impact of that is. And then also to think about who they would like to hear from about this, like, to understand more about what's being done and what might need to change. So this group of young people is a mixture of young people who are in poverty, uh, on the edge of, or have uh, a real interest in improving the lives of their peers. Okay. Um, and I think that that makes for a really interesting mix. And what we're getting is this really vibrant group of young people to start to challenge some um, assumptions that exist in Doncaster as well, um, both within the group themselves and then also more widely with their peers. Uh, and and I think the aim in Doncaster, as set out in our children and young people's plan, is to make this the most child-friendly borough in the country. And we think that putting the voice of children and young people at the heart of all of the, uh, the decisions that are made about them uh, is a really crucial step towards doing that. So providing them with a the platform to address child poverty at a local level is, I think, um, a really nice example of how children and young people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds can have a and that can have a positive influence in in an in- in improving the circumstances for themselves, but also their peers as well.
0: Sounds fantastic. And I really look forward to hearing how they all get on. Um, And maybe we can talk to them sometime uh, when things are a bit further down the line. Is there anything more that you'd like to add? Anything we haven't touched on that you think is important or anything else you'd like to recommend or?
1: I think getting the perspective of people from different settings would be really useful. So as I've mentioned, the thing around consistency, what that shows is that there are pockets of really outstanding practice mm-hmm. for the way that, um, uh, like, we work with children, young people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds, um, but that but that that isn't consistent, um, and I think that there's a lot more that could be done to ensure that it that, that it is, and that children, young people from disadvantaged backgrounds have more of a level playing field. I think there are going to be a few interesting examples over the course of the next three years uh, linked to the DfE social mobility opportunity areas. So these are 12 areas from across the country, each of which have received 6 million pounds in funding from the Department for Education to improve levels of social mobility. And I think what what we're going to see there is that the opportunity to, I suppose, test some novel interventions and understand whether they have a real impact and, and that could have some real implications for uh, the way we work with disadvantaged pupils from and across the country and the way that they're supported um, both form informal settings and in informal settings through charities as well or youth groups. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's kind of a, a watch this space with that one because I'm optimistic there'll be some really um, interesting and important work that comes out of those areas.
0: So it sounds like it's a really interesting area at the moment because there's lots of of development happening and um, that, yeah, we'll need to kind of keep on top of what's coming out and how that can help us. If someone's listening into this and some of the kind of warning signs and things that you've talked about have brought a young person to mind and they're worried, um, what's the most important or rapidly impactful thing they could do as soon as they stop listening now and go back to school or wherever they are with that young person? What's the one thing they could do?
1: I think talking to that child to get their perspective, like to find out a little, a little bit more about them, to understand their story, to understand why things are the way they are. So not jumping to conclusions. So if someone comes in in the wrong school uniform, or if, um, or if their uniform isn't clean, or if they're late for school, or they, you know, thinking about the other commitments that they might have. So like for instance, like thinking about whether they're a young carer, thinking about whether that that they have, um problems at home maybe their school uniform wasn't clean because the mum couldn't afford to put the money on the prepayment meter to run the washing machine you know there's loads of different things where like if you if you look at it on the face of it it can be very different to understanding the story so i think taking the time to understand children young people's experiences and and, and kind of building those connections with them so that you can better support them would really be my uh, yeah
0: my, my top tip thank you for listening If you have found this resource useful, please consider making a charitable donation to CWMT by texting talk 18 and the amount to 70070. And to learn more about the work of the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust, please visit cwmt.org.uk.